everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 46 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, David Carey, the chairman of Hearst Magazines, joins Lion Tree CEO R.A. Borkoff to discuss his eight-year tenure at the helm of the publisher, which included some of the most successful launches in the company's history. Carey is now embarking on an exciting new path as a fellow at the Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative, focusing on new social impact efforts. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. It's my pleasure to be sitting down today with the current chairman of Hearst Magazines, Mr. David Carey. David, welcome. Thank you so much. Great to be here. David has had over 30 years of experience in the publishing industry, working at titles such as The New Yorker, Smart Money, and at companies such as Condé Nast, and of course, Hearst, where he has been president for over eight years. As you know, Hearst has 25 brands with 300 editions internationally of its publications and over 100 million digital readers, which is quite impressive. And you know all the brands. They're very familiar to all of us. This summer, David announced that he would be stepping down as president to spend time at Harvard University as part of their Advanced Leadership Initiative, a curriculum that prepares and educates experienced leaders to take on new challenges. David, it's great to be here with you, and I'm quite sure this is a reflective time of your career, and also one that is focused very much on the new opportunities that are coming forward for you. Yeah, so as we start the year, it's very exciting. As you note, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be moving to Cambridge, and I'm going to be a college student again. People have said, oh, congratulations, you're going to teach at Harvard. I said, no, I'm going to be a student. And what I hope to be a year of expansive thinking surrounded by really great minds and something that'll set the next chapter for what I do. So I feel very grateful for the experience that's about to unfold. I want to talk about a lot of things with you today in terms of the businesses that you've operated and transitioned, et cetera. But first, about this next chapter, what prompted that decision and why now? I've always loved the magazine business and what a great privilege it was to be the head of Hearst Magazines. You know, I I came to this company as a kid in the mid-80s. And so to return back as president was a very special honor. And We had a great run over the last eight years in terms of doubling the size of the business, making acquisitions, launching new products, forming new partnerships. But I had decided about two years ago, and while the business is filled with opportunity and complexity, to run a global media business is also pretty all-consuming for the executives. And I had two years ago considered that eight or nine years felt like the right amount of time for me to have the energy to fly all over the world all the time, to have the constant flow of brand new ideas. And there are some jobs that you could probably do forever, but I think uh, these types of jobs, eight or nine years is a good run. And when Bob Greenblatt, who ran programming at NBC, stepped down in the fall, he kind of said the same thing. These are both really exciting, but pretty grueling. And it's great to think you'll just go all out for a period of time, and then you'll decide what comes next. And I had been tracking this very special program at Harvard for some time, and I had decided... I'm going to apply, and if I get in, that was going to force the decision and force the transition process. And it's not so easy to get into this program, as I understand it. What's wonderful about this program, it's really designed for people like me who are pivoting out of a CEO role and who have the desire to make social impact and contributions to the world a bigger part of their calendar going forward. And I have an idea which I'll touch on. I think they get five or 600 applications for the 45 fellowships. Hmm. And I recently met my uh, fellow classmates who were all a 
distinguished group of individuals. So you become part of the special community. You're in this really intense intellectual environment. And the people who've gone through the program have reported to be a very special gift to be able to have an experience like this at my age. I'm 57. Well, you mentioned social impact as being a key part of the uh, fellowship. What does that mean? A lot of people will throw that term around these days, but what does social impact mean to Harvard University's program and to you? Well, for this particular program, which was originated out of the business school created by Rosabeth Moss Kanner, the famed HPS professor, but it's the only, as I understand, cross-university program where you get a chance to take classes and interact with the faculty across Harvard Law, Graduate School of Education, School of Public Health, the Business School, School of Divinity. And it was designed for individuals who could take their skills and expertise and to apply that to also helping address long-held and kind of structural issues in society. And so you have to have an idea kind of going in and you spend the year in research talking to experts, kind of forming it. And so they created the Advanced Leadership Initiative to really be a kind of a laboratory for these executives who've run big P&Ls and big global businesses, but to also kind of take a concept and to really hone it over the course of the year. And so there's a group of very kind of like-minded individuals who do see that they do have an obligation, perhaps a moral obligation to pay forward the blessings of great careers. And can they use that learning to help others? Well, can you disclose what your idea was at the forefront? I'll give you a high level on it because it's going to change. I presented in January and in the January and it'll follow its natural evolution. Ari, you and I have talked about our kind of modest upbringing. I grew up in Southern California. My father worked in a grocery store stocking shelves five days a week, and he was a day laborer the other two days. And by every consideration, I did not grow up in a fancy household. I had incredible, loving, and dedicated parents. But, you know, we lived very modestly. When there were plans to go to college, there was no money. I had to figure that out. I didn't fly in an airplane until I was 18 and didn't leave the country until I was 25. And so I, I lead a different life today, and my family does, and certainly what I grew up in Long Beach way back when. And I've long felt that one of the issues in society today is social mobility has really declined significantly in the last 20 years. And whether it's the top 1% and all the wealth that's controlled, or even a great article recently in the Atlantic Monthly about the top 9.9% that control everything. And I often find that the children of privileged families, professional families, who grow up around dinner table conversations or their parents share good days and bad days and smart people they meet and knuckleheads. And these kids accumulate a lot of knowledge that at age 15 or 16, 17, they can walk into a room of adults and know how to interact. And that's in contrast to a big chunk of the rest of the population where there's a high incidence of single parent households or lack of professional white collar people within these children's ecosystems. And I'm going to focus on, is there a way to create a technology platform? Essentially, we'll call it kind of TED for Opportunity Youth to allow all of the great life lessons and learnings that are embedded across so many people that you and I know, all the people who've appeared on these 40 plus podcasts, to share those lessons, the moments of time that humbled them, the failures they've had and what they've gained from that, and to somehow use a media product to make that sort of knowledge more widely available to kids who don't have helicoptered families who kind of do everything for them. Mm. So that's at a high level is an opportunity to allow business and important life lessons to flow more easily across socioeconomic levels. Well, I'm honored that we're getting a jump start on that program right now with you, David. So we'll start this as your first uh, first, TED Talk. Yeah, yeah, it's my first kind of uh, public (laughs) discussion about this. Yeah, so let's impart some learnings because during your time period in the publishing industry, and obviously at Hearst, you had to constantly reimagine traditional businesses. 
which I'm very interested in because we always talk about the industry of media being an industry in transition. And it's not the only industry like that. I think we're all kind of transitioning these days and reinventing models. But it's easier to talk about it on a podcast than to actually do it every single day with real-life economic pressures and shareholders, whether they're public or private. And so you've had to transition your business, I think more than I've ever seen anyone else, over a longer period of time with success where you found growth opportunities out of declining businesses in other areas. So how do you go into a business model where you have to reimagine things all the time? Well, I've always been attracted to businesses that seem to be at an inflection point. I got uh, way back when drafted in to be the publisher of The New Yorker, just as Tina Brown, the then famous editor, was leaving. And the business had lost a lot of money over the prior decade and had the great honor of working alongside David Remnick as we did a lot of business model experimentation to get that business back on its feet. And now, of course, The New Yorker is absolutely soaring. And I've loved being in the cockpit here at Hearst Magazine. You know, this is a global business. This is the most global of any of our peer set. We have wholly owned operations in the UK and in Spain and Italy and Netherlands and China and Russia and Taiwan and Japan and joint ventures in most other markets. And so we've been managing both secular change, cyclical change and opportunities in all markets. So very proud of the overall track record in terms of what we got accomplished. And it involves obviously leadership. So we have 10,000 employees in the magazine operation. My great leadership team that I worked with, we couldn't do it all. And so we had to empower all the local managers to be in-house entrepreneurs, to not be afraid to try things that may succeed or may fail. We continue to be the only company doing magazine launches because we believe there's still opportunities in all sectors. What we uh, did in terms of our digital business, five and a half years ago, Troy Young, who's my successor, is the president of the magazine group, joined us to run our digital business. And Troy brought a brilliant strategy that took the business from no profits in terms of digital in the U.S. when he started to next year, I do believe we'll have nine figures of profitability for digital alone in the U.S., which is a very unique statement, I think, in terms of ad-supported digital media. And Troy is a fantastic leader for the next chapter of this company. And so constant experimentation. With that is also the expectation that you will fail a lot. You don't punish those who are part of failure. You make sure you learn from it and just keep going. And I do think that oftentimes in the magazine business in particular, people are sometimes afraid to take chances. I think we have taken more chances than most of the other companies. They haven't all worked, but enough of them have worked to give us a level of stability in the business that is different than the companies we compete with. But what forced the need to change? When did you first start to look at the business and say, status quo is not going to work here? Well, not just the magazine business, but every part of the media sector is undergoing this bracing change. So we're now 11 or 12 years into the iPhone arrival, a product that has captured people's brains and attention, stolen time from every other media form. With that, you know, certain advertiser behavior is influenced. And so I think the old line is if you're not growing and experimenting, you're falling behind. And so we always knew that we had to constantly keep at it. Otherwise, we would get stuck. And I think that's happened to some of the companies we compete with is they stopped innovating. And the truth is, is that, you know, all revenue forms are in just massive flux. It used to be in the magazine business way back when, I don't want to diminish it by saying a third grader could manage the P&L, but there were only three revenue streams. There was subscription revenue, newsstand revenue, and print ad revenue. If those are the only three revenue streams that I had to manage, I would have been done by work by 9.45 in the a.m. and go do something else. <laughs> Any one of our businesses has 10 to 15 different revenue lines in them now. 
And you have to find a way to maximize each one. And is it e-commerce affiliate revenue? Is it events business? Is it a growing attempt to take some of the brands and turn them into B2B and accreditation platforms? Is it ways in terms of all forms of custom media and branded content studios? I think something that Kirst has always been good at, and I found myself also uniquely skilled at, is just a level of dexterity in running these businesses. Sometimes in keynotes to the team, I'll show the photograph of the one-man band, the guy who's playing the drums and he's got the guitar and he's doing 19 things at once. And to show that we need to have that level of proficiency across such a broad range of business opportunities and the companies that can master that will enjoy much better futures. You talk about innovation and change, and sometimes innovation and change happens inside of a company and sometimes it happens around you whether you like it or not. In media's case, and in your case in particular, the delivery channels have shifted a lot outside of your control even. It went from print to online to mobile, now to digital video. So when you're producing content and overseeing a content business, how do you align yourself to one delivery channel versus the other? When you were seeing print going to online, going to mobile, going to digital video, how do you position that company for the different shifting yeah. patterns? Well, this really happened five years ago when Troy first arrived and we worked on this together. And we called it the shift for us of months to moments. And what that meant is we've always been very skilled at the monthly format, but our print magazines operate three to four months ahead of time. That's the production cycle for a physical product that has a lot of photography and heavily edited text. And so in January, the February issues are out, the March issues are at the printer, the April issues are in advanced planning, and people are starting to think of May issues. And so when there's snow on the ground, usually you're shooting your summer content. We found that if you brought that thinking to your digital business, you would fail. So we talked about we had to master months and moments. Good at the monthly business, but also good at the moment business, which means that we had to be very skilled at covering subjects and producing content that would be relevant at 3.30 p.m. today. And so that required a lot of cultural shifts of our content production. And how do we take these great brands, Elle and Cosmo and Harper's Bazaar and Mary Claire and Esquire and Town & Country, that have been known for all the credibility of their print products and to make them relevant today, whatever's happening in the news cycle. And I really credit the team for doing that. And as they took these brands, which were known for kind of more softer focused lifestyle media and giving them a news edge and giving them a relevance edge. And lo and behold, it worked because these brands have such great trust and admiration among their audiences. So we just had to pivot the relevancy of the content for the platform and we watched the business soar. And again, credit to Troy and Kate Lewis as editorial director and the team for just brilliantly executing that shift. Well, it all starts with the brand, right? Because the affinity of the brand is what we talked about a lot in last year's series of podcasts. And that comes with the credibility. So the consumer will give you flexibility to move your models from month to moment if they trust a brand. Some brands can't carry that. And that obviously leads the way for new brands to take on the mobile platforms versus print. And a lot of people say like it may be easier for a new company and a new brand to emerge in this space today in a mobile environment versus a transition brand. There's an interesting dynamic. So first of all, magazine media brands are the world's most famous small businesses. And I say that with great respect. And what I mean by that is, these brands, you've had guests on your show who have more net worth than the revenue of some of these brands, and you've had billionaires, so that's maybe not a fair analogy. But magazines, as just the print business, are good but not huge businesses, and that's always been the case. But in terms of measured by kind of consumer fame and trust, they're enormous. If you ever watch any tape shows of Jimmy Fallon or Colbert and a star comes out, what does he do? He holds up 
the cover of the star on Esquire, Harper's Bazaar, or Vogue, or Vanity Fair, that imprimatur that you made the cover of a magazine, something physical. So measured in terms of brand awareness, the brands are enormous. Measured in terms of their economics, they've never been that large. So therefore, there's a certain level of consumer permission to pivot in the space. And with all due respect to brand new startup A or B, they can make up a clever name and they can engineer their SEO to drive audience. But that's not the same as having a brand of credibility that people trust. Now, you just can't stand on that. And so what you do have to do, and we pay a lot of attention to all of the startups, and we never have here at Hearst an arrogance that says, oh, we're big and mighty and we're in this big fancy office building. We know more than them. The analogy is one of speedboats and aircraft carriers. So a few years ago, there was a great article in the New York Times. There were war games in the Persian Gulf against hypothetical Iranian threats. And the question would, could sets of speedboats working in a coordinated fashion bring down aircraft carriers, these mighty things that you can see the Intrepid from the Hearst Tower offices? And the answer was yes. And while this was an article really about military kind of war games, I thought it was a great comp for the media business in that even though Hearst is a big, mighty, and incredibly strong company, that we can't pretend we're an aircraft carrier because these speedboats could pick us apart. Hmm. So we spend a lot of time trying to dissect the strategies of all these challenger companies that maybe others don't give them credibility as much, but we take them seriously because the difference is, is we can easily kind of figure out and reverse engineer the moves of the big companies. But if there's a thousand small companies trying to pick apart our franchises, the odds are that some of them might succeed. You know, maybe not the whole group, but some of them will figure it out because a company like Hearst or the, the other executives you've had on your program, they'll never make a bet that will endanger the whole company. That's kind of rare. But these startups bet their franchises every other day. And a lot of them fail, but some of them will be proven right because they have a much greater tolerance for risk. They have nothing to lose. They got nothing to lose. Right. And so if they don't pivot, they'll go out of business. Right. And so like the salmon swimming upstream and not everyone makes it, we pay a lot of attention to them. And we really try to learn as much as we can. I spent a lot of my time in the last uh, eight years meeting with startups, meeting with founders, learning of how they see the world. And I've always thought if I could take their bet it all kind of mentality and apply it to our global franchise, that that would be a good mix. And so some of our very best ideas that we have, were kind of inspired by the moves of very small companies that were looking to become big. And I thought, wow, those guys figured something out. Well, can you give us a sense of the Hearst Publishing Division, of the size of the division, and what the makeup of the division is versus when you started? This is a proudly private company, but we do have more than $2 billion of revenue in the magazine group. 70% of it is media-related revenues. That's print and digital together. We've always had a number of service businesses that are part of the magazine operations. And so if you are a subscriber to Time Magazine or The New Yorker or Better Homes and Gardens or Rolling Stone, there's that company in Red Oak, Iowa that sends you the subscription notices. That's called CDS Global. That's been part of our company for 40 years. It's a BPO, business process outsourcing business that we proudly owned and works with about 90% of the publishers in the U.S. as a Hearst service unit. And then we also, uh, four years ago, started building a similar company that works with utility companies and that does a bill presentment and payment options for your utility provider. So there's always been a level of pragmatic approach at Hearst. The combination of media and then services is an important part of not only our division, 
But as you know, the story of the Hearst Corporation is one of enormous diversification. It started under Frank Benick, our longtime CEO and one of the great, brilliant business minds, and has continued under Steve Swartz as a business that used to be the corporation, almost entirely dependent on the earnings of Cosmopolitan Magazine when Helen Gurley Brown was editor. And Frank took the earnings from Cosmo and used it to invest in a lot of businesses then nascent. It funded our investment with Cap Cities and A&E, which lost money for seven years. And they gave us the chance to buy the 20% of ESPN when not everyone was lined up outside that door. Those businesses grew up and provided the capital to start to diversify into business media and the acquisition of Fitch ratings over a series of, of tranches. And the, so, the ESPN deal, one of the best all-time media transactions in my mind. It is, but not everyone appreciates the backstory of how it happened. And what was relevant then is relevant today. So Hearst is known as a great partnership company. The morals of our organization is we work with so many companies where we co-own businesses. And we treat these as if these are the significant relationships in our lives with our spouses. It's important for our partners to be happy because if they're not, it's just a complicated existence. In an industry where usually it's kind of ego that drives everything. The Benick philosophy around partnerships is what gives our company such a great future. This is a bit of a history lesson. So we invested in the, the creation of a and It lost money for seven years, but it was a very high-functioning relationship with the leadership of Cap Cities. And now this is a bit of a, a lot of acronyms. So remember, so KKR bought RJR. Mm-hmm. RJR owned 20% of ESPN, I think, for the thought that tobacco and sports had a good combination for promotion. Lou Gerstner saw the 20% stake in ESPN as a non-strategic asset, wanted to sell it, talked to the people at Cap Cities who said, you should approach our partner, Frank Benick. We've been through thick and thin with Hearst and they're the people we trust. So Frank got the call. And so only by being a good partner in a difficult business did that door open. And, and it was so, a bilateral conversation. There was yeah, no auction. I don't believe there was any auction. I don't believe this was a... There could have been, and maybe it would have gone to others, but the fact is that Frank and his leadership team was so trusted by Cap Cities that it was kind of ours to have the first look at. We pay it forward to today. During my time, of course, we've long had, oh, the Oprah magazine, which was started 16 years ago. That led to a a venture we have with Mehmet Oz that we've done media businesses with. We created Food Network magazine that was a success that then opened the door for HGTV, which was also a success which then two years ago, we started testing a new magazine called Pioneer Woman with Reed Drummond, also a success. And now Discovery bought scripts, of course, and they've said, what more could we do together? So this notion of high-functioning partnerships that one door opens another has been part of our corporate success story for decades. And that story is kind of uniquely ours. Well, it's not just a corporate story. It's an individual story, right? You embody that as well as an executive, as a person not just the company mandate. I think that water seeks its own level. The people who come to work here, who do well here, understand that culture of trust and partnership. It, of course, created by Frank and then kind of imprinted on everyone else. And so for those, it comes naturally to. Hearst is also a relatively apolitical culture for a big magazine publishing company. I think you watch the politics at Time, Inc. destroy that organization. And so, you know, some more companies, sadly, are known for constant infighting and kind of a Darwinian approach to their corporate cultures. Fortunately, that ain't us. And right. so people kind of somehow find their match. And I, so I think the people who work here are those who have an imminent sense of fairness and how they deal with others. And that just pays huge dividends. Well, you mentioned Pioneer Woman. That is a brand and a publication that you created, you fostered. And you were quoted recently as saying it was the best-selling magazine in the U.S., 
I'm wondering how you identify these trends and get ahead of these creations because verticals like food, travel, et cetera, are hugely popular right now. How do you prepare for identifying these trends and what do you think is in store for 2019 as you think about new trends, new brands? Well, a lot of it comes back to that experimentation which I mentioned. We knew that in Reed Drummond, if you were in Oklahoma, Reed Drummond is more famous than Bruce Springsteen times 10. Okay. But if you can see the ocean from your house in Los Angeles or New York, most people don't know Ree or they underappreciate Ree, who's got a huge following. So as is our model, we created an opportunity to initially do two test issues, see what the marketplace response is, see if consumers like the product. The first few issues each sold more than 300,000 copies. I believe they sold more in Oklahoma than in Texas and California combined, which doesn't seem mathematically possible given the population of those respective areas. But it showed that there was a huge opportunity in a part of the country that maybe was not as well appreciated by big New York publishing conglomerates. Then we did four issues, and then we'll continue to roll that out. The business was profitable the first year. Didn't make a lot, but didn't lose as well. And and showed there's always kind of pockets of opportunity. Now, I'll give props to my friends at Meredith, what they did with Magnolia Journal with Chip and Joanna Gaines, kind of similar approach. In terms of finding individuals, there was a huge following and then leveraging that equity to create a brand new media franchise. And so I think there's a zillion of these. So what did you see at Hearst in the last year? You saw us um, test Airbnb Mag, a new type of travel magazine for a generation of young people for whom Airbnb is a lifestyle. They love the kind of unpredictability of that Airbnb experience. It's not a cookie cutter Marriott or Hilton product. And you saw two weeks ago, we rolled out a test issue of a Shark Tank magazine and a new print product around this popular TV show that kind of stands for modern entrepreneurship. For my children, they love Shark Tank. They follow it religiously. And for them, it gives them an insight in terms of the world of possible, those crazy inventions that people come and they present. Hopefully that will have legs as well. So if we do our jobs right, we'll do two or three of these a year. The ones that fail don't cost as much. The ones that succeed can become pretty great businesses. So a lot of it is just being in the game. Yeah, I always say that. If you're in the game, it takes care of most of the issues. And to not get so far over your skis that you have to continue to create or support something that actually should be killed. So we put these stops in the process that if it doesn't hit a certain threshold, we will shut it down. We've only been in for a couple million bucks. It's not the end of the world. And the mistakes come when you think one more quarter, one more six-month period, and then all of a sudden you're in so deep that you get embarrassed to walk away from that. We never do that. You make decisions quickly when they fail. We build a business model that, you know, for all of our new products, you get two issues, then you get four issues, and both of that gives us a chance that if it does not meet the criteria, then it will not continue. And that's fine. And again, no one is embarrassed through that association of that failure because it's failure with a lowercase f. It's really more of a moment to learn from that and that makes each successive uh, test stronger. Well, I want to take advantage of your newfound perspective as the chairman versus the operating president and going to university and being much more um, big picture oriented right now to ask you a few questions about the environment. First, mergers and acquisitions. That's obviously more in my bailiwick in my field than your core day-to-day activity, but you have just witnessed a wave of merger activity in the media industry. Why do you think that's happening? Why do you think all this consolidation is occurring and do you think it's going to continue? 
Yeah, so I just gave a talk to a group of leaders, and your business is proudly in the TMT space, right? Correct. But it actually stands for something different than you thought. I think it stands for tumult, mayhem, and turbulence. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's not going to change, I think, during our careers. Uh, I think every year, uh, at the end of your 2017, you wrote in your annual note that you expected a frenetic year ahead, uh, which you were 100% right. And I think the pace only continues. Obviously, in the media space, businesses work better at scale. It's always been the case, but even more so. But let's be clear, and even though, you know, it, there's different waves of criticism of Facebook and Google based on the news cycle and who shows up to testify in Washington, if you add the $400 billion market cap for Facebook, or when you start there, you have to add almost every media company you can think of. If you strip away the cable distribution assets of Malone and AT&T and so on, and focus on the content businesses. I think if you had every content business, you don't get to $400 billion. This is this unusual period of time of these two or three giants with obviously Amazon you know, coming on. We'll look back on this period of time. It's history-making on so many levels. It's history-making in terms of the political discourse and the edge, in terms of you know workplace environments and obviously the very positive impact on Me Too and what it means to how companies operate. And we'll look back on this oligopoly or fang or however you put into it and see the power of these eight, $900 billion companies. You know, Amazon's R&D budget, I think, is $16 billion. I think across the space, I don't think you could find, again, the aggregation of all R&D would not hit to that level. It's almost 10 times the size of your whole business. Just R&D spend, yes, right, correct. yes. Although I'm not sure the profits of Amazon. We may make more money <laughs> if you strip out the AWS business. Yeah. Uh, so it is an unusual period of time that, you know, we'll look back business history on this period and try to unpack what it means. So obviously the consolidation is driven by both offensive and defensive moves to have scale. The other thing too about the media business is the media business historically, for all intents and purposes, was a regional business, right? And Murdoch was one of the great global digital operators. But the cable TV business was hard mostly to kind of jump markets. You have the Comcast investment, of course, now outside the U.S. But historically, these have been very regional businesses. But the ubiquity of smartphones have given you know, media owners a distribution platform that you can touch almost the entire world with very little friction. Even though we're, of course, 10 or 12 years into it, you've never had a moment that we could create a piece of content. This interview could be listened to in 50 countries tomorrow. 94 countries, actually. Oh, 94, precise, yeah. okay. And so, <laughs> you know, just for you, and you're a respected banker and advisor, you have not been in the media business, but you can now get to almost 100 countries with ease. That means you have to have a great collection of assets to take care of that opportunity. Yeah. Well, you've also been advocating a concept that digital companies are headed for a crash. Why do you think that? At the end of 2017, I did a podcast with Peter Kafka, where I mentioned that for digital media companies, many of them reminded me of the great line from Toy Story, where you had the skeptical Woody and the boisterous Buzz, and Buzz says, I'm going to fly. And Woody says, that's not flying, that's falling with style. <laughs> Anyone who's watched that movie with their kids can relate to that. I predicted this a little over a year ago, and I think it's been proven true. You've obviously, you know, watched the fire sales of things like Mike, despite a glowing piece in the New York Times selling for a fraction of its value. You saw Jonah Preddy also in the New York Times publicly muse the need for a merger. This was a company that had a billion dollar valuation. You saw Verizon kind of ride off its investment in Oath. I think the digital media business, well, of course, everyone knows of its key importance in the future, is a difficult place to make money. 
you have a lot of investors that plowed a lot of you know capital into these companies, hoping for their version of an Instagram type payoff, which you know everyone knows had twelve employees sold for a billion dollars and no revenue. The story for these businesses today is it's easier for these companies to kind of make news and throw parties than to build a real P and L. And we've been watching it for some time. We watch their staffing structures far exceed ours. And, you know, we've at times been frustrated competing with companies that have no P&L responsibility, outspending us at every opportunity, or going to CES and seeing these kind of installations and exhibits. That would be far more than anything that I could afford to do despite the size of my business. And it's kind of coming around because, you know, the revenue growth levels have slowed. The realization is that how they're going to get to the underlying economics to support billion-dollar valuations for some seem unclear. Mm -hmm. What I had mentioned to Peter Kafka only accelerated at the end of 2018 and will very much be the story of 2019. Yeah, we've been hitting on a theme of more groundedness about looking at company valuations and P&Ls matter, metrics matter, cash flows matter, valuations matter more. There will be always innovations and opportunities that are far afield and exciting and exhilarating to track. But ultimately, you have to come back down to what can be supportable by traditional valuation metrics. And I think that market transition is occurring right now. And I think it's overdue. And in coming back to the Hearst strategy, while we make lots of investments in many of these same companies we have partial investments in, but when we make a wholly owned acquisition of Hearst, anything that's above a few million dollars, we can't bring it to our board unless that business has demonstrated that it can turn a profit. It doesn't have to have necessarily be a big profit. Or but, profit today. Or profit today. But it has to have demonstrated that it does have an economic reason for being. And if it's only a business that has been, quote-unquote, falling with style, losing lots of money along the way, and maybe attracting a lot of attention and buzz, I'd get thrown out of a board meeting if I brought that to the Hearst board. So that sort of discipline, it's easy, again, to kind of make noise in digital. It's harder to have a real profit margin. And I think it's going to separate out those that are kind of full of it and those who really have a nose for money. And those that do, and there are some, I think are going to do great. And those that don't, that era is over. Yeah. So what do you think for your industry, for the magazine industry, what are the biggest challenges that you see on the horizon? And we obviously have seen challenges and you've overcome some of them and some persist. But when you look forward... For your industry in particular in media, what do you think about that? It's a challenge you have to overcome. People have asked me a lot of late of the future of the magazine business because it's a topic of some discussion. And I think there's a handful of good opportunities and the need to execute well against them. So I think there's going to be kind of three buckets in terms of the companies that do well. The first will be the two scale players. So that's really Hearst and Meredith. When I took my job here, Time Inc. was the undisputed number one. Connie Nast was number two. Hearst was three. Meredith was four. So the world's kind of upside down. These kind of more quieter, bottom line focused operators have emerged as the power players in the business. Timing fell over during my period of time uh, as leader of the Hearst unit. They had seven changes of leadership against the backdrop of punishing change. So if there's any recipe for disaster, it's that. Seven reinventions of a company in eight years. No surprise that they lost the whole franchise there. Hearst and Meredith are the natural consolidators in the business that can achieve great synergies. We bought the Rodale business at the start of 2018, which was a great success and a very smooth integration. So you'll have the two scale players. Then you'll have the niche and kind of passion-oriented players. These will be people like my friend Marvin Schenken, who owns Wine Spectator and 
cigar aficionado and whiskey advocate. And if you love any of those areas, those brands are Bibles to you. And he can create businesses that involve the print piece where they charge a premium price, digital and experiential. And so there'll be those opportunities, absolutely. There clearly will be an emerging class of rich individuals who like owning media businesses because it might give them better access to parties and to the hot restaurants. And so Mark Benioff, of course, is entering the space. We have a very successful and impressive Thai executive who just bought Fortune, Sports Illustrated. I would say among the independent publishers, 50% of those companies in the magazine business are for sale now, not all public. Some of them will be bought by individuals that will like to be in the publishing business. And, and so you'll have those where running a P&L will not be the priority. Maybe Jeff Bezos started that a bit with the Washington Post. You have a atypical owner now of the Los Angeles Times. I'm not sure where the rest of the industry fits in to that. The opportunities for the magazine business in particular in terms of the strategies is a couple years ago, I went for the very first time in my only time to a Chanel couture show in Paris. I've always wanted to go and I was there for, for meetings and I went. I've had that experience as and well. And so you saw in the Grand Palais. And yeah, it's this huge beautiful. stage set. And it's beautiful. And it's like elaborate in the staging. I looked at my watch and the whole show was 22 minutes. And I sat there like trying to understand that effort against 22 minutes. It was only done once, okay? And then, you know, it kind of started to reveal over time. Obviously, they filled a big room with journalists. So the earned media was high. But let's think about a brand like Chanel. And again, think about kind of a pyramid. At the top is the couture, the purest expression of the business, the highest ideal. And below that would be ready to wear, and then sunglasses and purses and shoes. And at the very bottom, and the biggest business for Chanel would be selling lipstick at Bloomingdale's. And it's that inspiration at the top that informs and gives the value of why people would want to own the lipstick at Bloomingdale's and to pay that price. I think the opportunities for the magazine business are not dissimilar from what the fashion industry has long understood. And I think what happens to the print product is the print products become less frequent, higher quality, even printier, things that would pain you if you had to throw them away at the end. But parked underneath the print products come obviously the digital business and experiential and B2B and e-commerce. And it becomes that growing pyramid where the circulation of the print product might be three or 400,000, but the Instagram kind of touch point could be 30 million. Mm -hmm. And so I think the business evolves using the fame of the brand using the print product as the couture version. Now, for some businesses, the print product will be the business. But I think for a lot of them, what will happen is the print product will set the tone. But again, there'll be nine other kind of revenue lines that will feed off that equity. Makes sense. You want a diversified model around the brand. Absolutely. We're actually entitled to it. Not all brands yeah. are. Yeah. But uh, these brands, through decades of reporting quality engagement, have earned that. And I think the opportunity is now to take even more full advantage of it. And as we really get started in 2019, we're focusing on our own areas of expertise and discrete focus areas like media, but there's a broader world out there. And we are now going to be thinking a lot about geopolitical activity, awareness around what's going on with our country. We're going to approach another election cycle before you know it. And the role of the press has really picked up during this whole period here. And the media and politics are inextricably linked right now. So how do you think about the role of magazines as part of the press in this broader political environment? 
Well, you know, I'm proud of the First Amendment in the U.S. and how it stood up often to some attacks in the last couple of years and uh, the role of journalism. And I think that journalism schools are totally re-energized. I think that from what I hear is that there's a whole generation of young Woodwards and Bernsteins that are coming out. And forget the national politics and the great work that the Times and the Post do covering the administration. The role of local media to keep their mayors and municipal officials and hold them to task at the same time. So I think that we can have a debate of pros and cons of the Trump administration, but I think journalism has been reinvigorated in so many ways that I think has lasting benefits. In our particular case, for our monthly magazines, it's hard to be in the news cycle, and that's also not their job. It's too hard to try to think of the type of content that is going to be part of a news cycle, although you can try to spark it, of course. And the news cycle changes by the moment. <laughs> yeah, and so our digital businesses obviously have to do that and have to do that well. You know, we and most of our markets do operate more lifestyle media than news brands, but I think everyone can look at the great work of The Times or just at The New Yorker. The New Yorker has raised their circulation prices, I think, by 50% since 2016. The good news is that consumers are being trained to pay more for content. The work done by The New York Times, which I think has 3 million digital subscriptions, during the dark days of the Carlos Slim, you know, 29% interest rate loan. And if someone would have thought the New York Times, A, had a bright future, would have 3 million people paying for access to content with no physical production cost, it would have seemed like nirvana. And obviously what Mark Thompson did and the Salzberger family has engineered just that. It's been a great transition to digital it, and profitably. Amazing. And again, you know, you can sit and think about if the political environment was not as kind of superheated, would they have achieved the same thing? Maybe not all of it, but they were on a good path, but they've really taken advantage of it. And mm -hmm. I don't want to diminish their efforts, but when, you know, someone sends you a slow pitch, it's your job to hit it out of the park. And they've done that. So politics is helping media and media is helping politics. Absolutely. The question will be, you know, Trump will either be president until 2020 or 2024. And there'll be a moment after. That'll be an interesting kind of moment when perhaps there's a maybe a, a, less, Settling ro down. a, a less robust news cycle coming out of the White House. But the people who are players now have really done a fantastic job of seizing the moment and strengthening their franchises at the same time. And I'm sure that now that you are... Um going to school, like any assignment from any university or any school that I've been to, you get a reading list. So I'm curious to see what you're reading these days and how you're preparing for uh, expansive behavior in, in your next chapter. Yeah, and I know, and I love your reading list that you do at your end of the year, end of your letter. So I have Thank this you. goal, and you'll have to ask me a year if I lived up to it, but to read a book a week. And that feels like the right thing to do to have this benefit of being back in school. I just finished a great book called Winners Take All came out in the fall, and it's a really kind of full-throated challenge, a bit to what I'm going to do in this Harvard program, but among business leaders who want to go out into the world and to seize initiatives. Often what they first do is to protect their own interest, which I would not do, but you know, there's lots of debate around charter schools, if whether those resources should be funneled into the public schools versus kind of in private out of, of view. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative has been funding a lot of things in education. I suspect the one thing they're not funding is research into mobile addiction by young people and the distraction that they have during their studies as a result of that. There's all these conflicts. And yeah. so the book is really worth reading. I don't agree with all of it. I'm rereading Innovator's Dilemma, 
I'm such a Clay Christensen fan. I think that some of the great examples in the world are the companies that attempted to ring fence their businesses, but of course they can't force back market change. Kodak and digital photography and Xerox and all those early works at the research facility. What I liked about our leadership here, and I've been a fan of Clay Christensen forever, is we constantly challenged our business. We never ever would allow someone to say, well, if we do that, that'll threaten what we've been doing for many years. Because our point was always, well, if we don't do it, someone else will. So we might as well disrupt ourselves as the saying goes. I also, you know, had reread also the great book by David Brooks, The Road to Character, yeah. which had a huge influence on me. And this is, you know, a big part of me, which is how you can both have a successful business, but have it again, have that moral compass. And his talk he did about the second mountain, his video that he did at the Aspen Institute. We flagged that on our reading list, actually. Yeah, so you can tell I hung on every word of that. And mm -hmm. again, a person who grew up in modest situations, who had the great privilege of having a really great run in the magazine business and decided, great, I can continue to do that forever or can I do something in addition in the future? So that talk he gave and also his book had a profound influence on me and reinforced my own need and people all approach things differently but kind of this moral imperative that I feel that I got to do more than just run a big P&L. In the future, we'll, of course, you know, have corporate or entrepreneurial roles. But I need it for me to overweight what I do in the future, to in some ways pay back the wonderful blessings I've enjoyed across a 30-year career. Well, you are a person of action and a person of your word because you are taking the climbing of the second mountain into practice this year and uh, really starting a new chapter that's much more transcendent, hopefully, about ideas and where you're going. And hopefully we'll continue to stay in close touch. And I'll benefit from your insights and your wisdom and your fellowship and your program. So thanks for being here with us, David. And congratulations on a great first chapter. And congratulations on starting a second one. My pleasure. Come visit me at school. I'll take you to the cafeteria for lunch. And I look forward to reading and hearing all the great things you'll do in 2019. Thanks for being with us, David. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.